0: Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, let's get into this text today from Ephesians 6. Uh, Warning ahead of time. Um, I was at a conference, as we've mentioned a few times, where some of the greatest preachers in the world preached, and my soul was bathed and... Infused with truth, and then I didn't preach last week, and so my cup is full. <laughs> so I hope I hope you don't have a roast in the oven. Um, and here, here's here's the other thing is that this text that we're gonna look at today is it's one of the Himalayas of Scripture. And it's really, really important for us to think clearly about. It's, it's this text at the end of Ephesians that probably, if you've got any church time in you at all, you're relatively familiar with speaking to our, our battle, the spiritual battle of the Christian. And sometimes, I think, we are apt to fall off in one of two ditches. Either we, we make the Christian life all about the battle and sometimes unwittingly attribute to the enemy, our adversary, more power than he has, and then sometimes we fall off on the other side of the road into another ditch, which is where sometimes we as American Christians who are particularly prone to being self-absorbed, we, we are sort of ignorantly unaware of the battle that rages around us for our souls and for the hearts and minds of God's people to make them ineffective. So um, I pray that today we would be helped as we think on these things. So I'm going to read this passage, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to work our way back through it, okay? Let me read. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. with all prayer and supplication we'll we'll stop there in the middle of verse 18 and handle the rest next week let's pray and ask the Lord to help us think on these things Father I, I come to you now needing your help Lord this is a weighty text and I pray that as we think about it as your people that you would do several things. First, for my brothers and sisters in this room who are already Christians, Lord, I pray that you would give us sober-mindedness. I pray in particular for men who are unengaged spiritually and who are sort of checked out. I pray, Lord, that you would seize their hearts and that you would stir our affections for Jesus, and that you would increase our confidence in your sovereignty and your work on the cross for our redemption. And I pray, Lord, for those in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ. I pray, Lord, for those that may think they are, but they're just sort of trapped in this cultural, nominal Christianity. Lord, I pray that you would awaken them by your grace and give them life in Jesus. And for the person that walked into this room knowing that they're not a believer, Lord, would you be so kind as to to give them ears to hear and eyes to see and a heart to believe that Jesus is Lord and our only hope. Lord, would you give us all a longing and a desire to speed that day when we see you finally and fully glorified. When men and women and boys and girls from every tribe and every tongue and every nation shall gather around your throne, giving you the glory and the honor that is due your name. or would you do these things for the joy of your people, for the glory of your name, and for the salvation of the lost. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have four short points today which will form my outline. I know many of you are outline and note dependent and I have made you that way. And so for those of you who are outline and note dependent dependent I'm going to give it to you up front four quick things that we're going to look at here in this passage. The first is our strength, the second is our enemy, the third is our armor, and the fourth is our command. Our strength, our enemy, our armor, and our command. First, I want us to look at our strength. Let's go back to verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6 that we just read. The Apostle Paul writes as he begins this instruction on preparing ourselves for spiritual warfare, he says to them in verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. It's important before we even begin to consider our enemy and before we even begin to consider The battle that rages around us, the battle for our souls, it is really important for us to understand the strength of God lest we slip into some very unhealthy, unbiblical form of dualism, which we'll talk about in just a second. So we need to read Ephesians chapter 6 in light of earlier statements in Ephesians because this is one letter. Remember that the people in Ephesus would have received this letter from Paul, probably from one of his from one of his associates, and this letter would have been read to them in one setting. And so they would have heard these words about taking up arms and armor for spiritual batter, battle right after they had heard these words in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Let me read this just to remind us of, of how things are in the universe and of God's power. For this reason, verse 15 of chapter 1, "...because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints." I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Listen to this now. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Listen now, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power Toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put, verse 22 says, all things under his feet. This is meaning God the Father put all things under the Son's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. And so we need to read this context as we, in a moment, think about our enemy, that God is sovereign over all. We just sang that a few minutes ago. God is sovereign and he has in the cross of Jesus, defeated death and sin on the cross, and has now exalted Jesus where he sits right now, presently ruling and reigning over everything to include every demon and devil of hell. This was understood well by King Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king in the Old Testament who got roughed up a little bit by God. Very exciting. Um, I love these sort of power encounters where God smacks people around. And after uh, one particularly debilitating uh, encounter with the Lord... King Nebuchadnezzar got up from that, and he says in Daniel chapter 4, this is a pagan king now, remember this Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 and 35. He says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? So, God is sovereign over all, he has exalted Jesus to be sovereign over all. No inhabitant, no demon, no devil, no evil, no tragedy, no disease, no thing can stay his his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then Psalm 115 verse 3 says that our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. And so I know I realize that's a little bit difficult for us to think about and that's not the main point of this sermon, to think about how the utter and complete sovereignty of God interacts with evil. But rest assured, Christian, that everything, even evil, even sin, even the devil and all his minions fall under the control and sovereignty of God. And he uses even sin and evil to work out his redemptive Purposes. And so Paul starts off by encouraging us to be strong. And, and that word there, be strong, in the original language is in the passive tense. So it could be better understood that we are to be made strong, to be strengthened. Because remember, what we've been talking about all along is that the gospel, the good news, comes before the command. And so the, we can if we don't read this with the gospel as our sort of foundational truth, we can just parachute down into Ephesians chapter 6 Verse 10, in the midst of struggle and spiritual warfare, and think that I've got I've to grit my teeth and I've got to do better and I've got to strengthen myself. But that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying that in light of everything that we've talked about, in light of how God has made you alive by his sovereign grace, and in light of how he has exalted Jesus above all things, and how he is your strength, and how he is your power, and he is your might, now. You are to be made stronger, to be strengthened by God himself for this battle that Paul is now going to prepare us for. And so we need to understand our strength. Secondly, brings us to our second point, we need to understand our enemy. Let me read verse 11 and 12 again. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I think another version says the wiles of the devil. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And friends, that is not the Republican party or the Democratic party or whatever you're against. And I, I'm, just, you, I'm just forewarning, I'm gonna start peppering um, These next couple months, my message is with angst against the American political machine that makes me want to pull my teeth with a rusty set of pliers. (laughs) Our hope is in the Lord, not in a political party. So if you are a Fox News junkie, and you're pinning all of your hopes in the election of a Republican, you are Potentially on the verge of idolatry, and if you are a CNN junkie and you're pinning all of your hopes in the re-election of President Obama, uh, you need to guard your heart against idolatry. Commercial over. All right, we'll keep going. (laughs) It's just coming. I can feel it. I can just feel the election cycle coming. Um, Jesus. will be king forever and ever vote be involved be humble trust in God not in a political party there's a few things that I want you to understand I didn't finish reading that I got tied up you guys sent me on a rabbit trail there so against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places so doesn't that sound a lot like what we just read in Ephesians 1 where it says that Jesus has been exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. It also sounds a lot like what we read several months ago in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 that tells us about this cosmic purpose of the church. It says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And so God has saved us to put us in little local congregations to be part of local congregations that believe in Jesus and make much of Jesus and try and preach Jesus connected with all other churches of every different stripe and preference and tribe and color and language across the world to be this thing called the church, to be a display of his glory to cosmic forces of evil. Friends, as just a little side here, does not that give us a picture of how important life in the local church is that God has deemed to show his manifold wisdom through dusty little sin-infested pardoned rebels like us who are part of a local church as a display of his glory to the cosmic powers of evil. And so there's a couple things that I want you to understand about our enemy. The first is that he's real. I don't have these notes written down, but if you're taking notes, I want you to know that our enemy is real. Jesus says in John chapter 8 and verse 44 that that Satan is a murderer. He's been a murderer from the beginning, and he's the father of lies. The apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, he warns us to be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Revelation 12, verse 10, at the end of the scriptures, we see that beautiful revelation and picture of God's glory, but we also see in Revelation 12:10 this reminder that the enemy accuses God's people day and night before God's throne. So friends, I think we probably all understand that, but maybe we've grown up and... Um, A sort of comfortable America where uh, we've sort of insulated ourselves from the reality of not just this general sort of force of evil, but a real personal devil who is bent on destroying God's work and God's people. The second thing I want you to know about him is that he's a deceptive schemer. Paul says that in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. He, he's been at his job much longer than we have been at trying to be Christians. And he is a deceptive schemer. And he comes at us, I think, from primarily two different angles. There's this one angle of just sort of obvious evil, evil that wants to sort of, I think, sink God's people into despair. But I think more often, at least in our context, in our culture, he comes at us much more subtly. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, as an angel of light, he comes to us through man-centered religion. He comes to us through churches that don't preach the gospel and fool people into thinking that they are okay with God because they're redeemed by just being part of a group rather than actually trusting in Jesus' work. He comes to us through the form of a sort of general American morality where we sort of think that we're better than other people or other nations just because we were born here in this land. He comes to us subtly through these idols who always lie. Friends, he is a deceptive schemer. The third thing I think we need to realize about our enemy is that he's organized. He's organized. We see here that there's authorities, there's cosmic powers, there's spiritual forces of evil, and so just as God's angels are organized, these demons that were once angels that have now fallen have some sort of organization as well, and the devil is strategic. I believe he's over nations, and I believe that he... Uh, He is over systems and over culture. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, we we read a few months ago that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 1, in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of air, referring to Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And friends, sons of disobedience isn't just a special set of particularly bad people. Sons of disobedience in Paul's vernacular is referring to all people who are not trusting in Christ. And so he is organized, and he, he comes alongside of our own flesh, and he, he then also piggybacks on fallen culture, to sort of form a kind of unholy trinity that we battle against. We battle against the flesh, our own flesh, our own sin. We battle against a fallen culture and world, and we battle against the devil. And he's organized, and he's deceptive, and he's real. But it's very important for us to understand this, and I touched on this just a moment ago, that although he's real, and he's deceptive, and he's organized, friends, if you hear anything today, hear this, he is not God's evil equal. If, yeah, praise the Lord. If I were to play a game of oppos- opposites with you and if I were to say right, you'd say left. If I were to say hot, you'd say cold. If I were to say up, you'd say down. If I were to say God, you couldn't say anything because God has no equal. We need to be careful not to slip into, and I think many, many Americans, probably that grew up watching Star Wars in the late 70s and early 80s. When I was a kid, I was eating that junk up. I didn't even know there were a first three. I was just watching the four, five, and six thinking, oh, wow. And then I'm an adult, and they come out with one, two, and three. Totally confused me. But anyway... We slip into this dualism because it's kind of the force of good against the force of bad. And you got Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader and, you know, they're just kind of battling here. And so so we sort of, I think, subconsciously carry that into our Christian faith. And we think that basically God and the devil are sort of 50-50 equal. And and then we even get more man-centered with it. And we think that we're sort of like the vice president when a Senate is tied. You know, like if the Senate, there's 100 senators, 50 states, each state gets two senators. I just learned that just recently. Um, And so so you got 100 senators, and if there's a 50-50 tie in the Senate, the vice president gets a vote, and he breaks the tie in the Senate. And I think a lot of Christians sort of subconsciously think of our battle with evil in that sort of that way, that it's sort of a 50-50 tie, and depending on our obedience or whether or not we utter the right prayer or we are holy enough for that week, then we have the power to sort of break the tie. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. I'm not saying that obedience isn't needed. I'm not saying that God doesn't use our faith, but God's hands are not tied by the devil or by our obedience. He is sovereign over all. Jude 6, it's just one chapter right before Revelation. Verse 6 speaks how Jesus has Satan on an eternal chain. Job, the whole book, is to show how God is sovereign and in control over suffering. And not just a sort of general suffering, but suffering that comes to us directly by the hand of our adversary. Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Friends, I say this all the time, either all things means all things or it means nothing at all. Ephesians 1, verse 11 says that He works all things together according to the counsel of His will. I want to read you, I've read it several times, but it's so good, I'm going to read it again. It's an old historic document from the church back in the 1500s. The Belgic Confession of Faith, in particular Article 13, the Doctrine of God's Providence, is written by a Dutch reformer. His name was Guido de Beres, which endears him to me because he was a Dutch guy, but he had an Italian first name, which I think is just <laughs> really kind of cool. <laughs> or maybe Guido's Dutch too, I don't know. But this is what he wrote, what many of them wrote, but he most of the authorship is attributed to him. And friends, this is a statement of man, so it's not inspired like scripture, but it is based on scripture, and it gives strength to my soul every time I think on it. Article thirteen of the Belgian Confession of Faith, the doctrine of God's providence. We believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them according to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. Yet God is not the author of, nor can he be charged with, the sin that occurs. For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he arranges and does his work very well and justly, even when the devils and wicked men act unjustly. We do not wish to inquire with undue curiosity into what he does that surpasses human understanding and is beyond our ability to comprehend. But in all humility and reverence, we adore the just judgments of God which are hidden from us, being content to be Christ's disciples, so as to learn only what he shows us in his word without going beyond those limits. This doctrine gives unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance but only by the arrangement of our gracious heavenly Father. He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures under his control, so that not one of the hairs on our head, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought, we rest, knowing that he holds in check the devils and all our enemies, who cannot hurt us without his permission and will. For that reason, we reject the damnable air of the Epicureans, some Greek philosophers. Who say that God involves himself in nothing and leaves everything to chance? Friends, if something like that hits your soul and that's the first time you've ever heard of God in those terms, and that maybe rubs you the wrong way, could I submit to you that it might be, and I can identify with you because when I encountered these biblical truths about God's utter sovereignty, and how he is is even sovereign over my trial and things that happen to me, it can hit you sort of the first time you hear it and kind of cause you to step back. Can I submit to you that if, if that's rubbing you the wrong way, friend, it might be because you are idolizing this life. It might be because you have a death grip on some temporary pleasure. You were not created just for these 70 or 80 or 90 years or 30 years or 20 years or 15 years or however many God may give you. You were created to be his forever and ever and ever. And this life is not just this life in the flesh but all of us whether we live for 10 years or 90 years if we trust in jesus we will stand before him forever and ever and ever and we will with the perspective of eternity be able to look back even on the darkest hour of our life here on this earth and see with clarity finally and fully on that day, how God used even that terrible thing to detach our hands from the things of this earth so that we might attach our hands to himself, friends. Don't put your stock in these 80 years, friends. Trust in a good and gracious Father who knows how to love his children well, and his love goes far beyond just earthly circumstances. Third point now. First was our strength. Second was our enemy. And the third is our armor. Verse 14 says, Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Okay, so let's go through this now. We've got six, seven, if we include prayer at the end, things that God gives us as our armor. Now, let's be honest. This is where American Christians get a little goofy Uh, We like to, you know, we like to market things, and so, you know, we get a little Roman sort of our set of armor, and you know, and that can be good if you went to Lifeway and bought one of these things, and you got it sitting on, you got a picture of this armor, spiritual armor, that's good, but here's the thing about things like that, is that we can sort of get so wrapped up in the picture that we sort of lose the thing that it's pointing to. Do you understand? And so we can almost become sort of almost mechanical about why well, I need to do this. I need to put this on. And that, that's good. That's helpful. But let's, let's go a little bit deeper and, and, and let the picture just draw us to the thing that God is wanting to show us behind this image of, of a Roman soldier. And so let's look first at the belt of truth very quickly. And this was very vivid for, for Paul because he was very likely in house arrest in Rome chained to a Roman guard who probably wasn't dressed for battle at that time, but Roman soldiers are everywhere. It's a militaristic society. And so Paul, this image would have been very vivid for him, and it was very vivid for the Ephesian church. And so first he says the belt of truth. Now, we have to get this picture of a Roman soldier who is preparing himself for battle and would probably wear some sort of long sort of tunic, I guess would be the word, and and when he would before he put on his armor would have a sash or a belt and he would sort of kind of hem up and tighten up all of the loose ends and and tighten up his loose ends it's it's a sort of getting ready to run kind of a maybe a modern day analogy like if you know a guy's on the sidelines in a football game put your helmet on and, and tighten up your chin strap and, and get ready it's a, it's a sort of getting ready sometimes because the word truth is in there, people think that maybe he's talking about the word of God, but I think that's unlikely because he speaks about the sword of the spirit at the end and he clearly calls that the word of God. And so I think what this word truth, which is a Greek word that means a sort of integrity and sincerity of thought is, is more along the lines of us girding ourselves, getting ready, clicking in, kind of understanding that we're in a battle and that we have to, we have to get our heads on a swivel and click in. Like, come on, get get ready. Button up your tin strap, let's go. Tighten it up. Fasten your belt, let's go, let's go. We're gonna gonna do this thing, is, is what Paul is saying there to the church. And then he says the breastplate of righteousness. Now what is this breastplate of righteousness? We know that as Christians, our righteousness is not our own. It's imputed to us by Christ. And so again, we have to remember that as we read this, we just parachute down into Ephesians chapter 6 and this verse, and we say that I have to put on my breastplate of righteousness. It could maybe send me into thinking that I've, I've got to go sort of be righteous to withstand the, the spiritual battle that I'm facing. That's partly true, but bef- we need to understand before we think along those lines that the righteousness of a Christian comes not from their own works, from inside of them, but from outside of them. It's imputed to us by Christ. So let me read a couple verses. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this. For our sake, he, meaning the Father, made him, meaning the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus on the cross takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. The Reformer Martin Luther called that the great exchange. He takes our sin, he gives us from outside of us, he imputes to us his righteousness. Philippians 3 7 through 9, Paul writes something very similar. Familiar verse. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In other words, his work. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Listen to this now. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So first and foremost, we need to understand that as a Christian, our righteousness is not whether or not we've had a good week. So first and foremost, your preparation for spiritual battle and the breastplate that Paul is encouraging us to put on doesn't, at its core, depend on are weak, and whether or not we've read the Bible, or whether or not we've said all the right words, but first and foremost, it comes outside of us from Christ. But I don't think that's all that Paul is saying to us, though. I think that there is this implication that now that you have the righteousness of Christ, you now can do righteousness and put on righteousness. In fact, that's what we looked at in Ephesians chapter 4. Remember, since Jesus has given you his righteousness, now put on the new self. And so because you have Jesus's righteousness, you can now be righteous. We are imputed Christ's righteousness, and therefore we can be righteous. Which brings us to shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I think a lot of people think this is referring to Isaiah 52, which is quoted again in Romans 10, that beautiful text that says, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news. But actually, I think this verse is referring to not that, but something else in regards to having a sort of readiness in our feet. A Roman soldier would wear a kind of leather sandal. Um, I think we've probably all seen pictures of that, a, a sandal that would sort of strap up his leg, and what they would do is they would take almost like a nail and pound it through the bottom of the, the sandal or the shoe, so that the spike would come out of the bottom, kind of like cleats is really what it was. Can you imagine walking on that? But anyway, they would have a sort of cleat so that their their feet could have traction. So that when you were in a battle and when things were coming at you and you were maybe having to swing your sword, you, you would have something on the bottom of your feet that could dig into the ground a firm standing so that you wouldn't lose your footing. And so Paul is saying have have something on your feet that allows you to dig in and be ready and that this readiness is given by the gospel of peace. And so what is the gospel of peace? Well Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says that since we have been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think What's going on here is Paul is saying is that put on your feet symbolically this deep understanding of now your relationship with God in Christ. Now you have peace. You are on firm footing. You can dig into the fact that you have peace with God, which is your number one concern in all the world. And if you, have, if you are right with your God, what can this world do to you? What can any devil or demon or any trial or anything do to you if you are right forever with God? And so Paul is saying, I believe, is dig into this truth. Get your traction on this greater reality that if you are in Christ, you have peace with God. And therefore, you can take on demons and devils in anything that the world throws at you. And then he goes on to shield of faith. He says that we should take up this shield of faith. The word for shield here refers to this full body length shield, not just these little ones that, you know, kind of halfway there, but a full body length shield. And in warfare of those days, they would dip arrows in, in tar, set them on fire and shoot these flaming arrows. So this would have been a very real picture to people as they read this letter and heard it read to them, these flaming arrows of opposing armies coming at them. And Paul uses a word there for a body-length shield. What are the flaming darts of the evil one? I think at their core, they speak to the temptations and lusts that draw us away from believing and trusting in the sufficiency of God. In fact, I think that's where just about all sin originates. Some temptation to draw us away from feeling like God is enough that 's why people give themselves to things that's that 's why we 're insecure that 's why we do that 's why we covet and steal and wreck our lives because we 're not fully convinced that God is enough and the shield of faith that Paul is encouraging us to hold up against these temptations of flaming darts of the evil one is to remember that God is enough to hide in the sufficiency of God. He moves on to the helmet of salvation. Thess- Thess- First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 8, Paul mentions this same helmet. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of our salvation. In sort of shorthand in Christianity, we say, I've been saved in sort of a past tense sense. And I think that's a biblical way of saying it. The Bible refers to that as well. But I think what Paul is getting at here is put on this helmet of the hope of your salvation. And understanding salvation biblically, I think we can really think of it in sort of three tenses we have been saved. We are being saved, and we will be saved. In fact, the Bible speaks of our salvation in those three tenses. We have been saved. That's justification. We are being saved. That's sanctification. And then it refers to that final day when we will fully and finally be saved. That's our glorification. Listen to Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3, listen to this. This is one of the most beautiful texts in the Bible. This is one to memorize and to write down and to meditate on. First Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's past tense. You've been saved. He made you alive through Jesus' work on the cross to an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. (laughs) That's past tense. God's keeping it. He is doing it right now. You are saved. You can't unsave yourself. God sovereignly saved you. God perseveres and keeps you. Now, this salvation that is kept in heaven for us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in that last time. So we've been saved. We are being kept, we are being saved for a salvation that will fully and finally be revealed in that last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so what's going on is Paul is saying, you've been saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. And so as it applies to putting on this helmet of salvation, when we're in the middle of an attack of Satan, when we're in the middle of a trial, when we're in the middle of warfare, We don't need doubt our salvation, but we can lean on it saying that this right here is confirming for us that God is proving the genuineness of our faith, even by what we are going through. And Paul tells us to put on this helmet and lean hard into the hope of our salvation. And finally, he says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the word he uses is for a short sword that's used for close quarters combat. Something that you can draw quickly. Something that's readily at your side. I'm not going to beat us up on this, but friends, let's just be honest. I think the Achilles heel of the American church is biblical illiteracy. I was talking to somebody the other day, and they said, Well, you know, like how the Bible says, God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> I wanted to be gracious, um, and so I reeled it back a little bit, and I said, no, no, brother. Actually, that's the exact opposite of what the Bible says. That's not in the Bible, but the whole message of the Bible is that God helps those who can't help themselves. And we attribute half-truths and pithy little statements. And if I could be honest, we're we're more familiar with marketing jingles of commercials than we are the Word of God. We could spend a whole Sunday on this, but friends, what is, what is your obstacle between giving yourself and reading God's Word and making it primary in your life? And is that, is that thing more important in your life than being able to draw the sword of God, which is your only offensive weapon? I plead with you to do whatever you can to make the Word of God primary in your life, to read it, to be in a community group where it is studied and read and applied. And finally he says that we should pray all times, at all times in the spirit, and he specifically asked for prayer for himself that he would be effective in his ministry of the gospel and we'll handle that next week. So that's our strength, our enemy, our armor, and finally I end very quickly with our command. Paul says it three times that we should stand. Verse 11, Put on this armor that you can stand. Verse 13, take up this armor so that you can withstand. And on the evil day, having done all, to stand firm. Verse 14, again, stand therefore. Friends, the command here of Scripture is not to reach down deep in yourself and to sort of grit and bear it and do better. The command here is to stand in the grace and the power and the mercy and the help and the strength of our Lord. I want to just speak to several different groups in this room and then we'll end. Are you an unbeliever? Have you become aware of that in these past few moments? Or maybe you came into this room aware that you are not a believer? now God is opening your heart speaking to you you're wondering now what do I do friend do you realize that the message of the scriptures is not that you can make yourself right and so you may be wondering how do I stand well here's the really good news of the gospel God makes people alive by the power of his gospel and not by their own merit and so if you're even hearing these words and they're convicting you right now I believe that is Very clear evidence that God may be causing you to stand right now. Ephesians 4 verse 14 says, Arise, O sleeper. Wake from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Do you have ears to hear? Hear the news of what Christ has done on the cross and stand in that. It's nothing you do. It's not some act. It's not your morality. And if you're doubting God, if you're doubting the Bible, friends, don't let that deter you. You aren't saved by perfect faith. You're saved by a perfect Savior. C.H. Spurgeon, my my hero, the Baptist pastor back in London, says that sinners can be saved by a slender wire of faith. Do you see Jesus? Look to Jesus right now. Look to Jesus. Awake, O sleeper, arise. Let the light of Christ shine on you even now. To the Christian that is aware of this battle and seems to be tossed to and fro, beat up spiritually, wondering whether or not you are going to make it timid and afraid and battered, I encourage you to dwell deeply on the sovereignty of God. To read Ephesians 1 and Daniel 4 and Romans 8 and Ephesians 1 that speak of the utter sovereignty of God. To read that confession of faith about the providence of God. To insist on community with other Christians. You cannot fight this battle alone. If you are being beat up in a spiritual battle, give yourself to the life of Christian community through community groups in this church. Finally, to the Christian that is sort of blissfully, un- ignorantly unaware of the battle, can I just encourage you to click in? In particular, you men who are just sort of pursuing leisure and recreation. You check in here, you're here two, three times a month, you do your thing, you're kind of on the edge. Basically, your life boils down to a pursuit of selfish pleasure. Maybe God saved you. Maybe you're deceived in that. Maybe you need to trust in Jesus. Maybe you're awash in cultural Christianity and you can't even see straight. Maybe you've been a member of this church for, for five years and you're as lost as the day is long. Or maybe maybe you are a Christian, but you're just, sort of, you're just sort of ignorantly unaware of the battle and you're just sort of living this sort of selfish life where life is basically all about you and, and you're just climbing up the ladder. You're just making more money so you can do more silly stuff and buy more trinkets and do this little thing and get this little toy and do this thing. And maybe you're a 30-year-old man that's just wasting his life away on recreation and leisure and self-consumption. God didn't save you so that you could be relatively comfortable, read a book occasionally in the resource center, dabble in a few Bible studies, and sail off into the sunset, friends. That is pathetic American Christianity, but friends, it's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. God saved you, young man. God saved you, man, for the reason of engaging in the battle to make much of his name. He saved you to put you in a church to make the manifold wisdom of God be made known to the evil cosmic rulers. He saved you for far more than where you're living right now, young man. And so click in, click in, stand, humble yourself, repent of your sin, confess your selfishness to your wife, throw away the silly little video game. Get rid of the subscription to that stupid website. And give your heart to the battle because God wants to make much of himself through pardoned rebels like you and me. For the glory of his name, for the joy of his people, for the salvation of somebody that may be sitting down the aisle for you, from you. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us all things? Let's pray. Fathers, we come now to a time of response to your word. I pray that you would stir our hearts. Lord, would you cause people in this room who do not know you to see you, to trust in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. They need not expect perfect faith, but they only need to look to a perfect savior who died in our place as a substitute for our sin. Absorbing what should have been our punishment. And all who look to him, all who believe in him, all who trust in his work alone shall be saved. Lord, for the rest of us in this room who are already Christians, would you stir our hearts with confidence and humility so that we may wage the good fight making much of your name. Forsaking our lives. Not living in this world as if it is final and ultimate. but Giving our lives away for the sake of your glory. Which beautifully is the most joyful thing we can do. God, would you help us do that, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.